0: join in that ministry and uh, appreciate Laura for teaching them today and uh, it's a vital important aspect. The children are the future generation. They're the ones who continue the task that we left unfinished, right? And so we need to invest into them and prepare them. Uh, I'm going to be speaking from John 17, which is known as the High Priestly Prayer. Uh, it's a very intimate chapter between Jesus and the Father as he prays over his disciples and there's a a lot we can learn so much I'm just going to focus on the first half of the chapter so much I want to say that could be said here and we just we don't have all the time of the day to say it all but hopefully we will be strengthened and encouraged uh, through looking at the word and and challenging what it has to share with us. Uh, I thought it would be important Since this is kind of a standalone uh, message, I I will be preaching the second part of the chapter in May, the beginning of May. uh, But I I want to build a little bit of context. So what has just been occurring is this is during uh, the Passion Week or the Holy Week. So we're thinking about Easter because it's next month. And so let's think some context uh, within this situation. And so what has occurred is... uh, Passion Week starts with the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. All right? Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. You have the palm branches and everyone is singing Hosanna, Hosanna to the king. And so that's Sunday of the Passion Week. Monday progresses and a very uh, visual scene breaks out in the temple as uh, Jesus comes to the temple to teach and to worship as was the custom during that Holy Week. And Jesus is moved with a sense of righteous anger over the scene that unfolds as he's thinking about what is going to happen later on in that week, and what the purpose of the temple stood. He he is moved, and and you see Jesus overturning the tables, okay, of the money changers, and and the famous quote uh, that comes is that, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. That's Monday, okay? We got Sunday triumphant entry. Monday, we're overturning tables in the temple. Tuesday, Jesus comes back. You can imagine people are talking after a scene like that, all right? So there's already controversy and and talk going on. And Jesus spends a large portion of the day teaching. Some very uh, memorable and famous messages and parables that we would be familiar with if we went through them. But he's teaching, teaching, teaching. He's confronting religious rulers. They're starting to seriously plot in their mind, how are we going to get rid of this guy? How are we going to capture this guy? This isn't acceptable. This isn't what we want our temple worship to look like moving forward. So that's Tuesday. Lots of teaching, lots of controversies. Wednesday seems to be a little quieter. Perhaps there was still some teaching going on at the temple. Perhaps he was resting back in Bethany where he was staying outside of Jerusalem. Uh, There's most likely preparations for the Last Supper or the Passover meal is starting to go on because that will occur Thursday uh, evening will be the Passover meal. So they're probably doing some preparations for that. And and it's it's Thursday during this Passover meal, during the, was also known as the Upper Room Discourse so the upper room uh, meeting together, uh, the upper room uh, time that he spends with his disciples, it's at towards the end of that is where we find John 17, that high priestly prayer. And what's interesting in John's account of these events is John is one of the only ones who who records some of these specific conversations during this upper room discourse. In fact. Uh, uh, he spends nine chapters. There's 22 chapters in the book of John. Nine of those chapters are dedicated to seven days. Think about it. John was with Jesus for about three years. Could write of a lot of things, but almost 50 percent of his gospel account is dedicated to seven of those seven days of those three years. And of those nine chapters, almost half of them is dedicated to this this evening time of just intimate fellowship between Jesus and his disciples, and it, he provides this farewell speech. They're not really sure where he's going with it. Jesus knows where it's going, and it's, it's a farewell speech he gives to them in this upper room as he inaugurates the Lord's Supper and commands them to observe the table moving forward. And in chapter 17, uh, it starts off in saying when Jesus had spoken these words. And so naturally, that's why I kind of had to build up. What words did Jesus, did Jesus just say? Finished speaking. It was his farewell address. Verses, uh, chapter, John chapter 14 through 16 uh, would have been the the, the words, the conversation, the the farewell address that he just gave to the disciples. And so after he had finished that portion, he he readjusts his focus. He was talking to the disciples, but without removing himself from the room, he's no longer focused on the disciples. He transitions into a prayer to his Heavenly Father. So, focus has moved from teaching the disciples. So now, he's going to pray over them. Kind of what happens on a Sunday morning when we have our pastoral prayer an opportunity to pray over one another. Perhaps you've had someone pray over you before when you're sick, when you're ill, when you're about to take on a, a, a trial, a task, a challenge. Can you imagine? If in a distressed moment, Jesus appears and says, let me pray over you, wouldn't that be welcomed? Very rarely will people refuse an opportunity for you to pray over them. A stranger, if you come up and say, I want to pray for you, how can I pray for you? Very rarely will they say, don't pray for me. You know, even, even people who don't believe in God will often be receptive towards others praying for goodwill on their behalf. But here we have Jesus praying over his disciples, a very intimate circle. And John, the Apostle John, records this so that we get a front row seat to this intimate setting between the Son and the Father, the eve before Jesus goes to the cross. And in this setting, we see a conversation that I would envision would be something similar to that of a soldier prepared to go and be moved to the front lines, where death is imminent and expected and his son before he goes to the front lines he calls upon his father. He calls upon his father because he's afraid. He needs encouraged. He needs strengthened. He needs hope that what he's about to do is going to work. But Jesus isn't primarily just concerned and fearful for himself, although he knows this task is the climax of his ministry. We're going to see in John 17, his focus shifts to his disciples. And, and I, I envision it as a son coming to the Father, seeking that affirmation and encouragement and courage to go forward with the task, but then pleading with his Father to care for what is most Rushes to that son, his bride, his family. Father, as I go and, and I won't be with them to protect them, to care for them, to provide for them. Will you look after them? Will you keep them united and care for them in that moment? And that thing is unwrapping and that's the prayer we're going to read this morning. That's a prayer we get to be part of. Partially a prayer that Jesus continues, as we'll see later on in May, for us as well. So follow along with me if you can. We're gonna be in John 17. I'm gonna read the first five verses here and we'll look at those as as we read. So when Jesus had spoken these words, he shifts and he, he lifts up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What we see here in the first five verses is an emphasis between Jesus focusing in his prayer on the Father-Son union. All right, so this is where it starts. The first request in Jesus' prayer to his Father is to be glorified by his Father before the world existed. I don't have the capacity to understand the emotions or the depth of what is occurring at this moment between the Father and the Son. They're eternally greater than us in all capacities, But there's something very powerful taking place here as Jesus prepares to go before the cross. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Glory is a word we might be familiar with, or what it boils down to mean is make much of something. Often we seek to praise something that we're excited about. If our sports team wins, we make much of it, okay? If our children do great at an activity or, or, or in school, we make much of it. We have little bumper stickers and we put them on our car, we might even put them on our neighbor's car. You know, and so we like to bring glory to the things we love, the things we celebrate. Sometimes we like to bring glory to ourselves, right? We want vain glory. And, and for a moment, you could almost feel like, this is our right. Why is Jesus praying that God the Father would glorify himself? Shouldn't he be praying about glorifying the Father? But when we understand God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are three in one, the glory of the Son is the glory of the Fathers and the glory of the Spirit. is still serving the will of and, and of his father and seeking to magnify as, as we saw here, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. It's this circular re- reciprocal aspect. And, and so one of the things I, I pulled from this section is that there's a mutual glory expressed in these verses that demonstrate the united ministry of redemption between the father and the son. They're united here. They are one in the process of approaching this cross, okay? The Trinity's united ministry of redemption is being put on display. Jesus is about to take the cross, but he's going there, strengthened through the Spirit, and by faithful obedience to the Father's will. It is the Father's will for him to bear that cross. And he's doing so, propelled forward, ultimately, by love. So this United Ministry of Redemption, this goal or mission, this work, is ultimately the purpose, it's it's God's plan to save humanity. Redemption is God's plan to save humanity from our sin, from death, and to then give us eternal life. And I I really appreciate how eternal life is defined here in verse 3, just straight to the core, okay? Verse 3 says, this is eternal life. What is eternal life? This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, the triune God, and Jesus Christ, who was sent by the Father. They must know the true God, and they must know and recognize that that true God sent Jesus into the world, and that Jesus is God as well. He is one with God the Father and God the Spirit. In fact, in John 4 to 9, during the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus made this statement. He says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Eternal life is found in having a saving knowledge of God. It's found in having a relationship with the triune God through Jesus Christ, through the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross. Now, when I read through John 17 a few times, I felt like something was missing, and and I've mentioned the Trinity, but when you read through the chapter, you won't find the Holy Spirit anywhere directly referenced. However, if we had taken the time to read chapter 14, 15, and 16, you would find the Holy Spirit scattered through there. In fact, that was one of his primary points to the disciples in his farewell address is that I will send a comforter when I'm gone and the comforter is going to give you power. He's going to be my presence in you and he's going to convict the world of sin. He's going to convict the world of righteousness, judgment, and empower them to continue the mission, the task that has been left unfinished. And so this, this work aspect of eternal life and carrying it out, the Holy Spirit is present through the greater context at work. And so they are united in their essence as the Trinity. They're united in their mission of redemption, and then they're also united in their essence as being three in one. In fact, we see the Trinity present at the beginning of creation, when it says we created, all right? In Genesis one, we saw the Trinity present at the beginning of Jesus' ministry of baptism. Alright? The spirit ascended, the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son. And then Jesus was present there, all three present. And we see them here at the cross, working together. And they work perfectly in harmony, united in a beautiful aspect through all eternity. Alright? It's a picture from Genesis to Revelation of the triune God at work. They are united in their essence. And they are united to their mutual glory and love. They're united to their mutual glory and love. Love is a major theme, and so is glory through John 17. We're gonna see this throughout today as well as in May. And one, if we if we looked ahead, in fact to, to, to the end of the chapter, to verse 24. It it spells it out. The last half of verse 24, it says, The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. See how that parallels with verse 5? Before creation. The glory that I shared with you before creation existed. And and what we find out in verse 24 is it, it was the love that moved them. It was the glory you have given me because you loved me. The love between the Father propels his desire to glorify the Son, and the love between the Son and his Father propels his desire to glorify the Father. So love is an important part here, and they're united through that aspect. And we can trace this glory theme throughout, throughout not just this chapter, but throughout multiple chapters in John if we had the time. One thing I want us to be thinking about with this United Ministry is that the Trinity Trinity is a beautiful relationship that demonstrates the eternal, perfect love. Eternal, perfect love between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Nothing is more powerful than this. There is not a force that can come close to demonstrating or capturing the power between this triune love. Nothing's more glorious than this. Nothing is more beautiful than this. The Trinitarian love is at the center of John 17 and it is the power behind the unity and the glory seen in God and demonstrated through the redemptive work on the cross. And and this is is what becomes really beautiful, is that as we just are in awe of God's love demonstrated in the Trinity, that the prayer begins to shift and now we turn, or Jesus turns his attention in his prayer towards the unique ministry of redemption in Jesus. So I, w- I want to focus on some of the aspects, the unique ministry that Jesus plays in this redemptive story. And one of these aspects is that, that we, we see right here, in verse 1 that the hour has come. All right? The climax of Jesus' earthly ministry is at hand. It's about to take place. Now, the redemptive work that Jesus was doing on earth did not start at the cross. The redemptive work has been going on throughout creation. It was made known and took on flesh at the conception of Jesus' miraculous birth, the virgin birth. But his redemption work was going on throughout his earthly ministry because he had to take on flesh and live a perfect life from conception all the way through to death. So this redemptive story was at work. In fact, what we see here in verse 4, it says that I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. This is the climax, but it's also somewhat the completion of of Jesus' redemptive work on earth, his unique role in redemption here on earth. And the patterns of Jesus' earthly ministry all right, were foreshadowed of this climatical moment of the cross. They were pointing forward the miracles, the teachings, everything he was doing was pointing forward, the investing into the disciples, teaching them and equipping them to observe the words of God, to obey them, to be faithful to his calling, all of that was building up and pointing to this moment of the cross. In fact, we see this reinforced in the next few verses, in John 17, verses 6 through 8, we, we see this, this mindset where Jesus is saying, I have completed the task you sent me, Father, here to do. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given to me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And that they have believed that you sent me. See, there's this aspect where the disciples and a lot of the people who have heard Jesus' teaching didn't necessarily understand that Jesus wasn't simply a good teacher. He wasn't simply a good person. He wasn't simply a prophet doing miracles. Jesus claimed to be God. And it took a while for some of the disciples to realize that. But Jesus is saying, Father, I have done your work. I have done your will. They know you sent me. all right? And they know that I am in you. And you are in me. And they now are in us is what we're going to see as we progress through this prayer. But one way I have, because some of the chapters, kind of circular themes that are going on, you come back and revisit and hit on it again. So it's kind of confusing because it's not like just a nice linear progression of thoughts and ideas. But some of, the, some of the progression that I observed in these first few chapters is that he was emphasizing, Jesus was emphasizing his mission to make God known to them. Right? He wanted to make God known. He wanted them to understand that God sent Jesus. He wanted them to know God more intimately and clearly through Jesus. Okay? And then he wanted them to believe. In verse 8 it says, They have believed that you sent me, Not to know it, not to comprehend it, to to, to, to understand it cognitively, but that it would transfer into a belief that would transform their very nature that would call them to give up everything they had to serve and follow Jesus and eventually to lay down their life for the same gospel news he proclaimed and taught them to take it to the rest of the world. So now, now Jesus wants them to understand that he is sending the Holy Spirit. We just spent a lot of time talking to them about sending the Holy Spirit and that they will soon know the Holy Spirit. What I see here is this continual progression of God revealing himself through all three persons. They do the Father, they know the Son, and they will know the Spirit more intimately. He's progressively revealing himself and equipping people to be in him as he is in himself. And so there's this aspect here, and, and his followers, <coughs> are expanding their knowledge and as their knowledge of god increases so does their capacity to love god think about it how do you love a complete stranger well, it's more abstract right but think about how love changes the more you get to know an individual all right you're able to love them better Maybe I bought roses at first, and then I find out tulips are her favorite. Then I can personalize it, I can customize it. So that aspect of knowledge, the intimate knowledge of God, should fuel the intensity of our love. They're not separated, they're one together. And that's what, what Jesus is working at here. And so Jesus has successfully completed his mission on earth and he is ready for the final work of redemption. He has affirmed his union with the Father through their perfect and eternal love. But before he approaches the cross, he turns his focus and he prays for the union between himself and his disciples. He prays for the union between the Son and his followers. Or as we'll see later on, between the Son and the church. Jesus prays for the unity of his followers. We see this pick up in verses nine through 13. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them, and I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now, now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world... That they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus pulls His disciples into the equation, all right into the Trinity. and He is calling on us to be in the name, to be made one through being in the Father, by being in the Son. The implications here are incredible. The glory and the love between the Son and the Father has relevance to us today, has relevance to the disciples in their time. Jesus prays that his disciples will be one, just as the Son and the Father are one. While on earth, Jesus delivered the Father's words to the disciples and other followers. Why? Why did he deliver these words that the Father had given him? so that the disciples and his followers may be united as the Son is with the Father, and so they would receive Jesus' joy in themselves. This passage is a precious glimpse into the union between Jesus and his disciples. That sweet relationship that was nurtured over three years of doing life on life together, and working through the challenges and the trials and not giving up on one another and growing close to each other, fond of each other. And he's starting to grieve. He's starting to grieve the reality that even though he had to take on flesh, he has enjoyed the fellowship with his disciples. He has enjoyed that close relationship. The big takeaway here is that the unity is produced in God. God. The unity for the disciples was accomplished in Jesus. Jesus kept them one. And now he's praying to his Father, keep them one in your name as I go to the cross and as I'm returned into heaven. Keep them one in you. Unity is produced by God, and we demonstrate it when we are in God. Keep them in your name that they may be one, even as we are one. It just makes me think of uh, the text in Ephesians 4. Many many of you are probably familiar with Ephesians 4. It talks about unity within the church. And here, uh, I I just want to read these these seven verses. Take the time to read these verses uh, this morning. It says, Therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, this is Paul speaking, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, as Jesus' disciples, as Christians, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in the love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, there is one spirit, just as we are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. It's not about us. It's not about me. It's all about God. Perhaps it's too obvious to make that observation that unity is not found in ourselves. But it's important to state, and don't we have to remind ourselves continually, how easily we forget that unity is not found in ourselves. It is found in God. If unity is found in God, then I will remove myself from the spotlight and work to point all the glory to God just as Jesus modeled in his earthly ministry. Give him the glory. And if we believe in the Trinity, three in one and one in three, perfectly united in eternal love, then we will set aside our offenses. We will set aside our preferences. We will set aside our opinions, our interests. These lesser things we will set them aside to prioritize what Jesus himself fights for, which is the unity present in God himself. God fights for it, and now he calls us to fight for it as well. And we're going to see why this is so important. I think the first implication here is for the church. All right, Jesus is praying for the disciples, he's praying for his followers and believers, that we would keep the unity. Why? To make us so good? No, to give glory to God and to represent him as our creator because he is unified in love he is not divided as a three in one he is unified we are many all right yet we are called to also be united under jesus united in god setting aside the things that could distract us and holding on to the thing that unites us in the gospel so that we can take that out and proclaim that In many sense, we should have thick skin as Christians. We shouldn't be so easily offended in situations, okay? Because it's not about us. We're not on the spotlight. Jesus is. When we start to get sensitive is when people start to assault our Jesus. That's when you start to get a reaction out of us. You try to take away our Bible. You try to take away our Jesus. You try to take away our worship. You try to silence us from doing what we've been called to do. You will hear us take a stand. But if you want to pick apart my sweaters, you don't like my sweaters, or if you want to pick apart different things that I might like that you don't really care about, that's okay. You don't have to like my sweaters. Uh, I like them enough, and I'm secure in that, okay? But, But what we ought to find our focus on is on the gospel. And that gospel provides the reconciliation needed to keep the unity within the congregate, because we're, we're a little prickly, all right? None of us are perfect in, in many aspects, right? and we can hurt each other. We can do friendly fire, unintentionally hurting one another. And that's where we need this thick skin, and that's where we need to commit to being reconciled, to going towards one another, keeping the unity, working on the unity, fighting for the unity continually in the gospel. And, and this might seem impossible to overcome, especially the more we get to know each other, the more impossible it might start to feel to keep the unity and to keep the love and to keep representing the triune God. But guess what? Jesus tends to like to take the very impossible things to us and make them very much possible through him. And so he has stepped up to this challenge, this impossible mission, and he wants to accomplish it in your heart. He wants to accomplish it in your family. He wants to accomplish it uh, in your in, in our church, he wants to accomplish it around the world with believers in France or wherever we go. He wants to be accomplishing this mission of unity through love, grounded in God and through the gospel. You see, I'm human and I'm broken, and I will fail you. And the unity cannot be grounded in me as your pastor. Can't be grounded in me. See, I'm human and I'm broken. But Jesus, Jesus is human and not broken. In fact, he's just not not broken. He's human and God, okay? And so he's the one that we are grounding our unity and finding our strength. Living united in love means living reconciled by love, reconciled to God and reconciled to each other. There's a second application here, application to our community, all right? When we are united in love under Jesus, we can carry that banner of love, the banner of Jesus' love, into Homestead. And I can make a little bit of noise, but if all of us were marching down the street proclaiming the love of God and singing and worshiping and shouting, it would get some attention, okay? They would probably silence me really quick, I'm not that hard to silence, and just shoot me off the street. But once we got 100 or 200 or 300 or 500 people proclaiming this wherever we go, in our work, in our homes, in the community, you can't ignore it anymore. And when we're partnering and working with other gospel-minded churches and calling them to work with us to proclaim the gospel, we are then a light on a hill that can't be hidden. That's what Jesus has called us to do. And we are strengthened in our outreach to the community by living united and representing the very nature and presence of God. That needs to become the center of our life first, not the center of our spouse's life, not the center of the person's life beside you or behind you. All right? We want it to get to them, but it starts with us. And then we invite it into our homes. We invite it into our workplaces. We invite it into our community neighborhood and take it through the church. The second aspect of Jesus' prayer for the church that I want to conclude with is that he is giving us his joy, right? Jesus is praying that the joy, his joy, is received in us, and how is it received in us? Through his word. This is kind of interesting. I don't really like written language. I find the English language very complicated, and it's difficult. I'm not a big fan of reading. I'm not a big fan of writing. Uh, But Jesus says here, this is something worth getting excited about. Jesus says here, these things I speak in the world, his words, his sentences, they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. It's through these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. See, we won't find joy in getting what we want. We find joy in the faithful obedience and surrender to God's word, his words, consuming it. In fact, this kind of makes sense. When you think about a number of Jesus' other teachings here, we don't often look towards Jesus perhaps for joy. We're looking for other things that can give us a quick fix of happiness, something tangible, something materialistic, We don't want to take the effort by faith going to the son in prayer or digging into the word and doing the work to pull out the joy that he possessed and to have it for ourselves. You see, God glorifying joy is rooted in true and intimate knowledge of the son and his word. We are to be satisfied through the word made flesh. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He calls us to eat him, to consume him, to devour him. He is the bread of life. He is the living water that satisfies, and he will never run dry. There are mysteries of God that we will continue to unwrap for all eternity. There's no end to his glory. There's no end to his love. There's no end to his joy. And what's beautiful is we don't have to wait till eternity to begin to experience it. Jesus has made himself known to us today. Jesus was making himself known to his disciples when he prayed this prayer. They were leaning on him and depending upon him for their joy, and their joy would sustain them in the difficult challenges of taking the gospel out. His glory, his love, his unity and joy are all wrapped up together and experienced us when we are in God. The ability to be in God has been given to us by the gracious loving sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Love seeks to glorify God, this perfect love, this godly love, which then produces the unity and the joy in us by being in God. So the big idea here is that the love, the same love, all right, the same love that unites the Trinity is poured out, all right, just Niagara Falls poured out through Jesus to bring unity and joy, his unity, his joy to your life, to your family, and to his church, the church here in Honesdale, all the gospel churches here in Honesdale, and all the gospel churches in all the world We need God's glorious presence to become more real in us than anything else we can experience or consider. He must cause us to marvel at him, to enjoy him, to obey him, to wonder at his creation, to gaze at his works, to give our lives in sacrifice to others so we anticipate an eternity to come with him, perfectly glorifying him forever. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 captures this idea really well. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, I just I lo- you expect a few more things on that list, all right? Eat, drink, you know, maybe three or four. No, it just gets, you know We're not going to go on with the list anymore. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And one of the beautiful things about John 17, and we'll, we'll look at it more in May, is that this farewell address is not forever. Going away is hard. Being separated from your loved ones, being separated from your bride, being separated from your family is hard. You're concerned for them, you're thinking of them. But the farewell is not forever. Knowing and having a confident hope that you will be reunited with your bride, reunited with your family makes facing the cross and the trials that lay before you somewhat parable as you keep the eternal perspective of what Jesus is promising. We maintain the hope and joy that Jesus has made available to us today, knowing with great confidence we will be in Jesus' presence again. When we break covenant and don't fight for unity, it is like the unfaithful bride... While the son is away at battle, the unfaithful bride goes and finds comfort in someone else. Let us not be an unfaithful bride while Jesus is away. Knowing he's returning, let it challenge us to be faithful day by day. Let us be known as a church and bride that faithfully works and waits for Jesus to return. And following his word, seeking to glorify his father, by being kept as one in Christ alone.